So what we're going to try and do, this is the plan. So I want to talk about four factors we need to bear in mind when we're reading Genesis 1 to 2. And these are quite general, but they will hopefully open up a lot of lines of thinking that may help you. You may have come across some before, maybe not all. And so what I'm going to do is introduce those four factors we need to bear in mind. There's some historical ones, some literary ones, some scientific ones, and some theological ones. And I'll talk about what I mean by those things as we go. And there's a video, as I say, and some other stuff to think about. And so then we're going to do a chunk of time on that, probably half our time on that. And then there'll be time for questions. And if you do want to ask a question and you're right at the back, you can probably tell that it'll be hard for me to hear it. So it might be easier for you to move further up nearer the time so we can talk about that. And I'm hoping that that together will help engage with a lot of your questions if, yeah, if, if we're able to do that. So you read Genesis 1, 1 to 2, and probably what happens, I imagine you have all kinds of assumptions that you bring with you because you're a modern person and you begin to read a text like the way that you would normally expect to read a text. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, they're not drowning you out. Okay. Um, so what you do is you, you pick up a, you realize as soon as you begin, in, the text I just began to read just now, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and carries on like that. You've got to immediately ask yourself, what kind of writing is this? How does it work? What did the ancient people who read it and wrote it think it meant? And then use those things to, start to shape the way you understand what it means, rather than beginning by thinking, well, this is what it sounds like to me. And so what I want to do is talk about four ways in which we have to do that when we're dealing with ancient texts. And they're true of the whole Bible, but they're probably especially true of Genesis. And if you don't do them, you end up in very hot water very quickly because you read it as if it's speaking in the same language and idiom that you use, and you forget that you and I use totally different language forms and speech forms than people did in the ancient world. And it can be very difficult to understand text if you don't realize that they're doing things that are different from you. So in our world, you know certain things. So if I was to begin, a story, begin speaking by saying, once upon a time there was, you already know that the form of speech I'm using is that of a fairy story. Right? I'm, if I, once upon a time there was a man who, you know that I'm not telling you something that actually happened. I'm telling you something that might be a fable or a parable to illustrate something. If I say... June 29th, New York City, you know that I'm beginning a newspaper report and that what I'm saying at least claims to be historically true and something that actually happened in the world on June 29th. And there'd be lots of texts in between that you just have genres and styles that you're used to. You have assumptions about what words mean, about how language works, many of which the people in the ancient world who wrote and read this document didn't have. And so what we've got to do before we start going, oh, yes, well, it looks like this is a problem because of that, and here's how do we square that with that. We have to immediately attune ourselves to the kind of writing and the kind of text it is and what expectations we can have of that text. And here are the four kind of factors I just mentioned that I think we need to bear in mind. We need to, first of all, bear in mind historical considerations. How do you read a text as an ancient text and not a modern one? How do you do that? What, how much do you need to know about the ancient world before you can make sense of an old text? Historical factors. Second thing is literary factors, or in other words, to do with the style of literature that's involved. How do you read literature of different forms? The Bible's got probably eight different types of writing in it. Okay? Turn to the person next to you and name as many of them as you can. I'll give you the first one. Right? One of them will be, it's got songs in it. Okay? But how many other kinds of writing are there in the Bible? See if you can get to eight. That's good. You're still going. Okay, shout some out. Letters. Parables or stories. Yeah, which are, parables or stories which aren't true. Genealogies. 
Poems. Okay, poems or songs. Good. Historical narrative. Proverbs. Apocalypses, which are the weirdy, the, the things that we don't, yeah, weird, right? We don't, don't sort of have those. And, and then there's a kind of law, basically, or legislative. So the, the book of Leviticus is really none of those other things. It's a list of laws. So you have lots of these different types of writing. You then have to learn how to discern which literary style is being dealt with. So you have historical things to bear in mind, literary things to bear in mind. Third thing, you have scientific considerations, which we'll talk about. What expectations do you and I have as modern people in the world of electricity and computers and dishwashers? What expectations do we have of what a text should or should not say? And what expectations do they have? And then fourthly, you have to bear in mind theological factors. What is the text trying to do to tell you about God? And how do we process that in our world? Okay, so we'll just walk through those, and then we'll take questions. First kind of thing, so historical considerations. How do you read texts through ancient eyes? How many people in the room, hands up, had to study Shakespeare at school? Almost everyone. How many people read Romeo and Juliet as the play? Loads of you, okay. In the, what happens at the very beginning? How does... How does the beginning of the fight scene at the beginning of Romeo and Juliet begin? What's the, how do they start? What's the equivalent of you starting on me in their culture? Do you bite your thumb? Yeah? So you read, you've all read that, you read that play? You've seen the film? And if you haven't, that's what happens, okay? Doesn't spoil anything. They both die. Everybody dies. That's generally all Shakespearean tragedies. Everyone dies. But at the beginning, they start by, do you bite your thumb at us, sir? I do bite my thumb at you, sir. And you... And of course, every, well, your first time you read that, you're 14 or whatever it is, you think, this is a very strange story. I don't know what they mean. There's nothing threatening about biting a thumb. That sounds like I could just be nervous or anxious or something. But we know, as soon as you start reading Shakespeare, you think, historically, that was a gesture of like flipping some of the finger or being quite physically or verbally aggressive towards somebody. So we have to bear in mind what historical things are going on in the world of those people that we might not otherwise know. Now, there are lots and lots of those when you read ancient texts in the Bible. It's just it might not always, we're so familiar often with biblical writing that we might not even realize how many there are. Might not realize how important it is to understand what they are. So, I'm going to show you a little DVD now from a guy who is an expert in ancient literature. And he's a professor in America who writes, and it's about eight minutes long. And I think it's an extremely helpful video of just teasing out some of the some of the historical things we need to bear in mind when we're reading a book like Genesis. So again, we might need to just make sure that the volume is okay, if that's okay. And then I'm just going to press play, and hopefully it'll all work. Uh, Genesis through ancient eyes, uh, that's really our target. And there's some good reasons why we want to try to understand the Bible in that way. And so I want to start with that. I'll try to move quickly at the beginning because I always run out of time at the end. So I'll try to move more quickly at the beginning this time. Uh, for me, it always starts at biblical authority. That is, we need to know why it's so important that we are interested in what the Bible says. Uh, because the Bible isn't just another book for us. It's a book that we view as God's word, God's revelation of himself, and it has authority. And therefore, it makes claims on us. And we take those claims seriously, even when we don't always agree or even understand what those claims might be. So we talk about the Bible having authority. Uh, in that process, and God chose this process, God's purposes are carried out through human purpose. That is, he decided to use human authors. Um, instead of um, communicating to each one of us personally, 
um, generation by generation and giving his revealed word that way. Uh, he had it written in a book, and so his authority was vested in human authors. So the author is the one that carries that authority given by God. Now, that's a really important link because that means that the authority is not connected to us as readers. The authority is connected to the author as the one who is writing that No, 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 no. What is going on? Alas and alack. Okay, I'm absolutely gutted about that because there's lots of very useful pictures in this thing which I think are going to really help. Um, and I'm going to try and find them for a moment. So I'm just going to ask if you would just talk to the person next to you about something and pass just I'm sorry about this past five minutes is just it's crashed or something um, so I'm just going to try and find some pictures because I think the pictures will really help you but if you just talk to the person next to you um, I'll be back in a minute okay somebody is coming and hopefully they're going to fix it and that would be great if they can in the meantime you're not connected to a network so don't worry what we'll do is we'll move on and we'll do the literary scientific and theological bits and hopefully by the time we get to the end we'll have the video so it can work okay so Ignore history for a moment. We'll come back to that. Literary considerations. And I want, you've got to think, when you're dealing with any ancient text, you've got to think about, the, or any text, you've got to think about what kind of writing it is and how that writing is supposed to work, what it's trying to do, how it functions, and what sort of expectations you have. And I want to give an example of how to do that wrongly. And I think this is quite a good, good visual illustration of how to read a kind of writing badly. Okay? You might have seen this before. This is a picture of what the woman in the Song of Songs would look like if you took everything in the book literally, okay? And here's why. So you, you read this text, and it actually says, your eyes are doves. There they are. Your nose is a tower of Lebanon. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. So they literally do. And there's Winnie the Pooh with a pot of honey. Your breasts are two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Your neck is the Tower of David, which is but built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields. Your hair is a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your temples are pomegranates. There's loads and loads of other things we could put in there. Now, you and I probably know, if you've read the Song of Songs at all, that the way the writing is intended to work is not to say these things are literal statements, but that in various ways, those things, much as they don't sound very flattering to you, if I went up to anybody in this room and said, you, yeah, Lauren, I, you, I land, my eyes landed on you at the wrong time. Lauren, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down Mount Gilead. You would be exactly, stop it. Like, that is not a compliment in our culture. But in theirs, it might be, because it in, would involve shiny black coats sort of cascading down a hill. And it would probably mean, whereas in our country, goats aren't black. They're kind of grey-whitey and not very nice smelly things. So, um, so we have to understand the kind of writing that's being used, so, and that's always true. The difficulty is sometimes you, you come across a type of writing and it doesn't fit any of the forms that you're used to reading. So a good example of somewhere where that happens a lot is in Revelation. People read Revelation and you go, we don't write like that now. No one does. That kind of writing hasn't been used by anybody in the last 1,700 years. So how do we read it? To a degree, you have some of that when you read Genesis 1. Because it isn't quite, it's certainly not poetry, right? It's not poetry in the classical sense of rhyming pairs and so on. But it's not historical narrative quite either. It doesn't read in the same way. It's very, very rhythmic. A lot of people call it exalted prose, which is a sort of a slightly fudgy term for it's not quite history in kind of natural historical narrative, but it's not quite poetry either. It's somewhere in the middle. 
Here's some examples of why that's true. You read Genesis 1 and the bit we just read just now, you know, in the main meeting. And God said, and it was so. And God separated the hmm from the hmm. And there was hmm, and there was hmm. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And then God said, and it was so. And it, the whole thing is extremely, it was quite an unusual style of writing, isn't it? But most of the Bible doesn't read like that. You read Genesis 1, and then you read Genesis 17, or Exodus 13, or 1 Chronicles 21, or whatever it might be, and you think, Genesis 1's different from those passages. It has a lot of traits that means that it doesn't quite read like other literature, but on the other hand, it doesn't read completely differently from those other literature, types of literature as well. So there's a, a, one of the Greek, I, I always find this quite interesting because it bothers some people and other people go, ha. Ah. There's one of the Greek church fathers, a guy called Oregon. Has anybody ever heard of Oregon before? Three, okay? Oregon is well known for two things, being a brilliant, if slightly controversial theologian and castrating himself. Um, with stones. Um, so a slightly unpleasant kind of experience. And anyway, so forget the second one of those. But Oregon was a very insightful commentator on the Bible, even if he was sometimes a bit out there. But he asked, he was writing in about 220 AD, a long time ago. And it's important to note, a long time before modern science suggested that the earth was old, right? So before any of that, and Oregon said in what he wrote about Genesis, he asked this question. What person of intelligence, I ask, will consider as a reasonable statement that the first and second and third day, in which there are said to be both morning and evening, existed without sun, moon, and stars, while the first day was even without a heaven? I don't think anyone will doubt that these are figurative expressions which indicate certain mysteries through a semblance of history. Right? So this guy, writing 1,800 years ago, was saying... If you just read Genesis 1 on its own, the literature alone should make us think that it's not quite just giving us a list of chronology. Why? Well, because there's mornings and evenings, and there isn't a sun, moon, or stars yet, and there's a day, and there isn't even a heaven yet. So how does that work? And Oregon is not saying that because he's discovered rock evidence or been taught in school something about Darwinian evolution or geology. Oregon's saying it because he's just read the text, and he's saying, the text tells me that this can't just be a chronological historical list meant to be read at face value as if it was just a, a timeline. There must be more to it than that in the literature. And that's something he's getting from the text alone and not from scientific observation. So we've got to have literary considerations in mind. We've got historical ones, which we'll come back to hopefully. We've got literary ones as well. We've got to think, what kind of literature is this? And that may indicate to us that there are things we assume from a text that the writers and the readers of that text initially would not have assumed because that wasn't what the writing did. Now, this is a particularly silly example. But the example is intended to show if you read a text that is of one type or genre and you turn it into something of another type of genre, you end up in a right muddle. And it's important to bear that in mind when you're reading a book like Genesis and certainly the very beginning of Genesis and Genesis 1 to 2. So, historical considerations will come back to you. Second, literary considerations. Thirdly, you've got to have some scientific considerations in your mind as well. You've got to read text thinking, if they are making claims about the world, what kind of claims do I make and expect other people to make about the world, and how do they work? What am I expected to learn when I, scientifically? How do I process the world? What sorts of things do I know or believe? What expectations do I have for truth in a text? Okay? So I, 
try, try this with the person next to you. If you wanted to use a part of your body to connote that you really, really loved somebody, how would you do it? If you say, I love you with my... Turn to the person next to you and tell you, what are you most likely to say? You don't have to say it to them. I know that would be weird. But I love you with my... How would you say it? You might have one of two or three different options, but probably there's one or two major ones, okay? How would you say it? In English. I love you with all my heart. Any alternatives to I love you with all my heart? My mind, my soul, the depths of my being, maybe, right? I'm not sure you've ever said that. How many teenagers go, I love you with the depths of my being, right? But does anybody know now how you might say it if you were speaking in certain ancient languages, including some that were written in the Bible? So there would be, uh, there's an interesting part of the body. And in fact, no, no, let me instead ask you this. Where do you actually get, in your body, where do you actually get the sensation of being, so if you have a crush on somebody, where do you feel it, right? So you feel, and don't be crude, right? You feel it there as well. But you feel it in your heart, right? Your heart beats faster. But where do you get butterflies? Where do you get that surge of adrenaline? Where does it feel like it's coming from? Okay? Like here somewhere, right? Your stomach or your gut, yeah? You, know, you would never say in English, I love you with all of my guts. I hope. It's not very flattering. But you know, but if someone did, you would understand why. So in the ancient world, a lot of cultures, they would say, I love you with my bowels, right? They, you, genuinely, you read through that. In fact, there is a, I love this, there is a Puritan tract written in the 17th century by a guy who's trying to talk about the fire of God in your life and how the passion for Jesus should take over your world. And the, it's literally called Bowels Opened. That's what, the, that's what it's called. So, and you can get it in modern translation. And a friend of mine's, you know, kind of turned it, presented it in modern English. Bowels opened. Now, you and I know that in English, you wouldn't say, I love you from my bowels, because it would be extremely odd. And it's just not a nice part of the body to associate with. But you also know that there is a sense in which you do feel a kind of a rush kind of here if you are in love with somebody. And you and I, if we wrote something like, I love you with all my heart... And somebody 300 years from now read it, and well, 3,000 years from now read it and went, those idiots. At the start of the 21st century, they thought that this muscle in your chest, which literally all it does is that, they thought that the heart was where emotions lived. What a bunch of freaks they were at the start of the 21st century. How could anyone be stupid enough? Surely they should know that all of those things happen in the brain. But you and I know that that manner of speaking indicate something that I love you with the pituitary gland doesn't quite do, or I love you from the frontal lobe doesn't achieve. Even though you and I know that in practice, that's actually what happens. Even right down to, you know, I really, I, I stub my toe a lot. I stub my toe about once every week or two. Um, and I make a huge fight. Stop, drop, and roll is my f- philosophy. Make an enormous scene, and everybody stops and goes, what are you doing? Um, and I could, I, my toe really hurts. Well, technically... Although I did hit my toe on something, the pain is being experienced here. But I talk that way because it's meaningful to and because other people know what I mean. Now, you've got to bear in mind, if you're now reading an ancient text, they have different rules about what scientific expectations are in the text than you and I do. So one of the things that the video, had it worked, would, would show you this fascinating, what, it, what it, John Walton does is say, take a word like the moon. Right? You and I hear the word moon, List the attribute. Look, what is the word, what is the moon in the sky, right? What does the moon indicate to you? Just tell the person next to you everything you know about the moon. It might not be very much, but you probably know some things, okay? What do you know about it? Okay, name some things you know about the moon. It reflects the sun's light. Well done. Ripple of applause for that. 
Good. A ripple. Yes. The round of applause will be for special revelation. It reflects the light of the sun. What else? Connected to lunacy. Um, that doesn't get a ripple of applause. But yes, I suppose. Or it's believed to. But what, do we know? what else do we know about it materially? What? So it controls the tides. Good. Do you know um, Galileo didn't believe that when Galileo said, was arguing for the earth going around the sun? He said, no, Kepler's a loon. He thinks that the moon causes the tides. Stupid occultish idiots. Right? Turns out Kepler was right. Galileo was wrong. That was only found out more recently. But yeah, we know it controls the tides. What's it made of? Rock. Yeah, we know that. Um, how do, does, it, does it move? Yes. Around what? The earth, right? Now, so we know it's a lump of rock that reflects light from the sun. It's up in the sky, but that doesn't mean it's fixed. It's actually revolving around us, and it revolves around us once a month, as well as turning itself round so that you catch the same face. In the ancient world, they didn't know any of those things. The guys who wrote Genesis 1 did not know those things. They had never heard them. It would be like talking to them about the existence of microwaves. They just didn't realize that that was the case. And that doesn't mean they're bad people. It doesn't mean they're stupid. And it doesn't mean they don't understand God or that the Holy Spirit can't speak through them. But they didn't know the moon was made of rock. They didn't know it reflected the light of the sun. They didn't know it was in orbit. They would have no idea what that was. From their point of view, the moon, what what do they call it in Genesis 1? What does the writer call it? Does anybody remember? If you read Genesis 1, you probably have. He doesn't use the word moon. He says, the light, he refers to as a lesser light. Round of applause for this man. That's good. So it's referred to as a light. In other words, the way they viewed the world, like the way we might say, I love you with all my heart. We, we, have, we have certain knowledge lim- limitations. We, some, some things we know, some things we don't know. And some things where we use figures of speech to reflect a reality that we might know differently, but we talk about it in a different way. In their world, they did that too. It's just that their assumptions were different from ours. And some of the things they simply had no idea about. So when they're writing Genesis 1 and they're saying the great light and the lesser light, the sun and the moon, they believe the moon is a light. They think it's like the sun, just smaller. And a nighttime version. They don't know what it is. And that matters because then if you are now trying to reveal, if you're God and you're trying to reveal yourself to the world, you have a choice. Do I use the forms of knowledge that they have and make my, make my revelation relevant to them? Or do I use words and concepts that they have no idea about and just bypass the readers and the modern and all their contemporaries and say, well, I'll write it in a particular way so that in a few thousand years' time, Western people will be able to understand it? Do you see what? That's the difference, isn't it? Do I speak to you now who are writing it and reading it in Egypt or in Israel or in the wilderness? Or do I reveal it many... To, to people many, many generations later, using language like billions and electricity and light years and things which they just would never understand. Orbits wouldn't know what it was. And I think you and I have to bear that in mind when we're reading ancient texts and understand, wow, we are dealing with assumptions, scientific assumptions that you and I don't share. And sometimes that means that the writer will say things in the idiom and language of the day that may not be affirmed as truths, in my view they're not, always, but they're being used as ways of communicating things that they really did need to know. The mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. Well, what if there's a slightly smaller seed somewhere? Does it matter? No, the point stands. The mustard seed is the smallest seed that they knew of in their world. So it's fine to say that. It doesn't mean it's not true, but it just means it, it may not be true in the same sense that you and I would expect it to be as a scientific remark. 
These guys next door are, should we, I don't know, we might need to do that big cheer thing again. Do you want to do the big cheer? One, two, three. Good, thank you. It just keeps, keeps them in their place, I think. Um, so you have lots of that in the Bible. The earth, in, for many people in the ancient world, the earth was built on pillars. Sometimes in the Psalms, it talks about the pillars of the earth. So there's a lot of statements that are made in Scripture that are using the language and forms that they had in order to communicate something to them that you and I, when we read it, need to be careful not to assume that they are speaking with scientific accuracy about what they're saying. You and I expect that of writing because that's what most writing in our day does, but theirs did not. Did anybody, anybody here done A-level maths? Did you find... Why are you all sitting there? How weird. Did, it, did you find that on starting A-level maths, they told you that a number of things you'd learnt in GCSE maths were wrong? Did you experience that? How many people in the room have experienced, they've done an A-level, and one of the first things that happened was people said, some of the stuff we told you two years ago is now untrue. How many, literally, put your hand up if you had that experience somewhere. Look around you. That's probably a quarter of the room have experienced that. The reason we do that in certain subjects, maths is like that, physics is like the chemistry, the more sciencey things usually, the reason we do that is because we're trying to accommodate, we're trying to res- constrain how much we tell an 11-year-old. And we know that if we tell an 11-year-old everything they need to know, they may not make sense of it all. So instead, we say, well, we'll give you a, an approximation of it so you understand it to a point, And then as time goes on, you'll learn more. That's fine. I think it's okay for God to do that on certain issues. I'm not saying God does that about history or about the gospel. Although, actually, even there, I think he does a bit. But I'm saying scientifically, if you speak to people who think that the moon is a light in the sky, it is not the most important thing in the world to tell them that it isn't. The most important thing is to tell them God created everything and to use their forms of speech and thinking to communicate that idea. So, historical factors. We have to read text as an ancient text, which I'm now touching on really various ways. We need to read, read it literarily and understand what kind of literature it is. We need to read it with scientific considerations in mind. What sort of expectations do you and I have of text and science? And then the fourth thing is we need to have theological considerations in view as well. What is the text trying to do? What is the writer trying to tell us? Right? I think the writer is trying to tell us some very simple things here. God made everything. Right? Time, space, matter. God made everything. That's a simple simple thing that it's trying to say. It's pretty obvious. But actually, if it didn't happen in a series of literal 24-hour days, does the meaning of the text fall apart? In my view, it doesn't because the writer is using a particular form of speech in order to communicate to them truths which go beyond it. And which using the way that they think about the world and using a form of writing that they're very familiar with. Even the seven-day week, actually, there would be in ancient writing, you would sometimes use a seven-day week to describe the way in which a temple was built. You built this on day one, and they built that on day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. And then at the end, they put the image of the God in the holy place of the temple. Right? That's how temples were often built. You would build everything else, the buildings, the courtyards, the tapestries, the different courts and tabernacles and all that sort of stuff. And then in the holy place or in the worship zone, you would put an image of the God. Well, that's exactly what Genesis 1 does. It uses that structure and has an image of God placed in the holy place at the end. So, I think there's a number of... That's a theological consideration. What's the writer trying to do? He's trying to say, the heavens and the earth are the temple of God. God made it all. And human beings are the image of God, which bear... They they show you what God is like. 
to the world. He's trying to say God made everything. He's trying to say everything he made is good. He's trying to say sin has spoiled and corrupted everything, but God is one day going to fix it and restore it. You might think that that's an obvious way of doing it. Oh, God made this, made this, made this, made this. That's surely how everyone does it, but it is not. So I want to read you a quote from um, an alternative creation myth from the ancient world. It's called the Enuma Elish. It's a Babylonian story. And in this, what happens is, whereas what God does in the Bible, God speaks, let there be light, and it was so. We're used to that, so we think that's normal. But in another ancient text at around the same time, this is what happens. Marduk, who is the kind of key character of the God, uses half the cadaver of an evil goddess to make the sky and control the waters. This is what it says. Then the Lord paused to view her dead body, the body of a goddess, that he might divide the monster and do artful works. He split her like a shellfish into two parts. Half of her he set up and sealed in the sky, pulled down the bar, posted guards. He bade them to allow not her waters to escape. Now there's some similarities with what God does, separating the waters above from the waters below. But whereas in the other ancient epics, sometimes you'd have, I'm, using, I'm fighting and wrestling and using a goddess and turning her into a, a barrier between sky and land. What we find in the Bible is God says, let there be a firmament, an expanse to separate waters from waters. And it was so. So what the writer is doing is not just saying God made it. He's saying God made it sovereignly without any effort or striving, or battling, or fighting off other gods, or killing people. God just said it. And when God speaks, it happens. So the theology of Genesis, what the writer is trying to do in the way he tells the story, is also got to be borne in mind. So literary, scientific, theological considerations. And then as I said at the beginning, what the video would have shown, in some of the historical things you have to bear in mind, what, what there is, it's, it's, some, it's very, very helpful. Actually, you might well be interested. If you just look it up online, John Walton, Genesis Through Ancient Eyes. It's a, there's a 10-minute video on a, on a website in which what he does is basically, he's got two pictures which show how ancient people thought about the world. And it's really clever. It's got a very a modern artist who's basically mocked up how they see the world. And whereas you and I see the world and we think like that thing I put on the stage earlier, a globe. You hear the word world, that's what you think. What they saw was, literally, the world was not made of matter entirely. It was made up of gods and goddesses. Literally, the sky was a sort of a kind of a god. And there was a god lying underneath the world. And there was, even for the Israelites, the world would have been like a snow globe. Imagine a snow globe with a shaft of light coming down through the middle to be where, to the Garden of Eden, where God lives. And then there was land, and then around the edge of that, there was water, right? So the world might have been flat and round, like imagine a snow globe with a dome and a shaft of light coming through it. And there's land in the middle with mountains, and then there's water all around the edge. And then underneath the world, there are pillars holding it in place. And there's a gr- massive sea monsters swirling around, like Leviathan, under the earth, effectively, who, which is why they were so They're not a very water, waterborne nation, Israel. They're not a great, they're not like England, seafaring, rule Britannia. The Jews, not so much. They're not military, they're not na- a naval people. And they actually had this fear of the ocean. And for them, it was a dark, swirling place filled with danger and sea monsters. And that's why in Revelation, the text I read just now, it said there was no longer any sea. For them, sea is a mark of danger. So I think the world's going to be new creation. There'll just be a huge lake. But there's no sea, meaning there's no sign of kind of 
conflict and aggression coming out of the sea. And the reason that's helpful historically is because what it does, it says, look, you and I hear the word world, the earth, and we think a globe. The other ancient nations saw the world as made up of gods everywhere. Israel, neither. Israel didn't see it made up of gods because they said there's only one God and he created the world. But he's not part of it. But they also didn't see it like we do because they didn't know that the world was spherical and made of rock. And they didn't know that there was a core in the middle and then a mantle and then a crust. They didn't know any of those things. So for them, they conceptualized the world quite differently. And if you read Genesis 1 with that in mind, it actually makes a lot more sense. You start thinking, wow, they did... They believed certain things about the world that we now don't believe, and that's okay. That doesn't mean that the text isn't true. It doesn't mean that the text doesn't reveal God and that He created everything. It just means that some of the forms of speech and some of the expectations you and I might have of it need to be adjusted in light of the way that ancient texts work. So those are four things you need to bear in mind. Historical things, how do ancient texts work? Literary things, what kind of writing is it? Scientific things, how did science work then and how does it work now? And theological things. What's the text really trying to do? At that point, I'm going to press pause on what I'm teaching and just let you guys think through if you've got any questions you'd like to ask me. And as I say, if you do and you're a way back, it might be worth you getting a little bit nearer so we can hear you. We've got probably 10 or 15 minutes to do that if that would help you. And we can talk about anything in this whole field. It might not be anything to do with what I've said, um, but you can just fire away. But maybe just give yourself a moment. Just turn to the person next to you again. Just press anything interesting, anything helpful, uh, anything that's prompted you to think or ask. Just have a moment's chatting. Just wake yourself up. Okay. Any questions about anything to do with the beginning of the world? Yes, sir. Okay. Civilization, human civilization seems quite young, but scientific indications are that the earth is quite old. Do you see an old earth is incompatible with Genesis 1? I don't. No, I don't. Because of a lot of what I've been saying, actually, I think that the kind of the expectations that you have when you come to a text like this, for me, and this is a, you'll know, lots of this stuff is controversial. People disagree. But my, my view is, no, I don't think it is. I, I, I don't think the, anything in the text is intended to communicate how old the earth is. Um, in fact, I, I, would, I would almost go so far as to say that to say that it was, to me, would be a misreading of what the text is trying to achieve. But I do think it's using the forms of thought that the ancient world had in order to communicate really important stuff. Um, but I think it's, one way I would imagine it, it's, it's, hard, it's quite hard to get your head around it, but... In a thousand years' time, they will know lots of things. Assuming the world is still here, Jesus hasn't returned yet. There will be a lot of things that people know in a thousand years' time that to us now would make no sense. There are things, to be honest, now that we know that when my grandparents were your age would make no sense to them. They just wouldn't be able to... Con- you know what I mean? And have you only had the experience of trying to explain how an iPhone works to an elderly person? Do you know what I mean? And suddenly you kind of just be like... I- I just am not on the same. What is an app? I, this is just not, I don't understand. And that's okay. But what you would do is you'd find ways of, imagine you now got parachuted out into the middle of the Amazon jungle and you met an ancient tribe who didn't, had never met a white person before and you're there to, and you produce a phone and try and show them how it works. It would be very, very difficult to explain what it was using any way of thinking that they understood. So you'd have to work quite hard at understanding their culture to figure out how best to say it. I think God, in, in a sense, is doing that in the ancient world. And then for us to read out of that, this is all to be taken as a scientific revelation about the, how old the earth is, to me would be to misread it slightly. But I don't feel, like, I don't feel that's a strong point. I, do, I don't divide from other Christians. I've got lots of good friends who really disagree with me about that and think that it does say that the earth is young. But personally, I don't, I don't think that's incompatible at all.
personally. Yes, sir. Okay, so I don't really understand how it works that you, you seem to have just these two human people, Adam and Eve, and then you have, other, you have Cain and Abel, and then Cain leaves, and there seem to be other people. What's that about? Again, so two, two ways of reading it, but the way I would go with it is I think God creates lots of people he doesn't tell us about. That's, that's my simple answer. And I think that the reason for that is I think Cain and Abel, Cain or, kills Abel out in the field he's trying to hide doesn't want anybody to see because he thinks if he does it in a town, he'll be seen. So he goes out into the countryside. We then find out that he goes away and founds a city. And we find out that he finds a wife. And I think in all, th- all three of those indicate that there are lots of other peoples around that we're simply not told about because that's not the point of the story. You read most of the Old Testament. It's all about Israel. And occasionally you find out there's other nations around. You read Genesis and I think you find the focus is on the line that leads. The, the focus is on what Genesis calls the seed Right, the promised one who is going to come and bring blessing to the world. So, Genesis, you know, Adam, Eve, your child, one of your offspring, is going to be at war with the offspring of the snake, and one of yours is going to crush his head. That your seed, right? And I think that is the focus of Genesis. That's the, what the story is trying to do. So I, I think in some ways it would be trivial to say, how many other nations were there and where were they? That's not really the objective of the writer. But I think it's kind of assumed... And so I, for me, there are lots of other people we're just not told about because it's not relevant to what the author's trying to do. The alternative explanation, which a lot of people would use, is that effectively Cain married his sister, but that, that wasn't anything like such a big deal back then because there's a lot of the dangers that we have related to that don't, didn't exist then because there was hardly any people. Um, but that's not personally the one I would use. But that, that's how I would do it. Do you want to follow up? Does it mean we're not all related to Adam? I think... To be able to, people answer that question differently. So I think for some people they would say, maybe not. And, maybe, and the issue is that Adam's sin affects all of us in the same way that Jesus' righteousness affects all of us. And it's not necessarily a question of biology and genetics. And there'll be other people who would say, even if they agree with what I've just said, that actually, if you, it sounds like a slightly weird thing to say, but if you have a, if, you had a, if, if this, this room suddenly, if everybody outside of this room suddenly died, and we are now responsible for repopulating the earth. It's a slightly unpleasant thought, probably, right? But, and let's say we do. You would find 20 generations on that it's not like everybody would only have one ancestor or one pair of ancestors. If you think about that, I have two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, 16. And you keep going up. A few generations down, you'd be related to everybody. In a smallish, small enough area, everybody's related to everybody. So some people would say Adam and Eve are, everybody is descended from Adam and Eve, they're just descended from lots of other people as well who are not, who are not directly related to them. Personally, I'd go more for, I think God created some people he didn't tell us about, and I don't think every human being ever is biologically descended from the same couple. And that's partly based on scientific considerations, which I, I would have. That's my personal view, but it's not everybody's. Yes, madam. Sorry, madam, I just aged you by about 50 years. I'm really sorry. Can Christians believe in evolution? Yes, and lots of them do. Um, I, don't think that means it's a, it's, I don't think that means all solutions and all ways of thinking about science and faith are equally valid. I think some variant, variants are... What you have to do is you have to be clear about what does the word evolution mean. So I would say evolution, as I understand what you're saying, I would say yes, absolutely, a lot of people do. You probably know C.S. Lewis, right? He did. Tim Keller, he does. Um, you know, lots of people do. Um, but I think, the, I think the challenge is that sometimes people hear evolution and they'll mean different things. Evolution can just mean change over time, right? The evolution of the British political system. It can mean natural selection, right? In other words, you 
put a whole bunch of Arctic foxes in the desert alongside desert foxes, the Arctic foxes will die out quicker. I imagine everybody in this room, in that sense, believes in it. Yeah, that's obviously true. Um, because they're not well adapted to their environment. So evolution could mean that. But as you go through, you realize sometimes the word means other things too to people. Some people hear evolution and they think it means the whole world as we know it came about without any God. Well, I don't believe that for a moment, and no Christian believes that. So one, one of my favorite quotes on this is actually from a guy who has written a, a detailed book defending evolution in pretty much all of evolutionary theory as a Christian. His name is Dennis Alexander, and it's called Creation or Evolution, Do We Have to Choose? And the opening line of the book is, all Christians are, by definition, creationists. It's a clever line, because what he's saying is, if you're a Christian, you must, every Christian believes in creation. The question isn't, did God create the world? The question is, how? If, you, if you're a Christian saying, I don't believe God created the world, he's saying, well, you're not a Christian then. That, that, that is integral to Christian belief. But that's not the same as saying God created the world without using the means of evolution to do it. And a lot of people would say that he did. And an analogy I've sometimes found helpful. Some of you are going, what? I didn't think that. And people differ, right? It's a big point of debate. But I personally do believe you can believe in evolution and be a Christian. And with some modifications, I do myself. And that's personally my view. But it's not the view of a lot of other people on site. And I, that's, I don't think it particularly matters, actually, in lots of ways. But, but I think one analogy I've found that might be helpful is... Do you remember, there was, there was a, we would, you would you say, you'd probably be happy to affirm that God shapes the valleys and brings the rain and brings the clouds, and blah, but you would also be happy saying that God uses erosion and the water cycle to do those things, yeah? Does God cause the sun to rise? Yes, but he also causes the momentum within the ga- galaxies to do that. Does God cause the, it to rain, to, you know, this afternoon or tomorrow or whatever? Yes, but he does it using the means of the water cycle. I think it may be that God's done that using evolution, but a lot of people would disagree and say it's incompatible with the Bible. Um, but so I'm a, I'd be an, an unusual. So I would affirm a, definitely a historical Adam, a real couple, a historical fall, and also most of evolutionary theory, personally. But lots of people on site wouldn't. And you talk to other people, they'd have different takes on that. But don't, so I would just say it's not something to fall out about, but I do think it's worth thinking through and asking. Is that, is that okay? Other questions? One or two more. Yeah. What would, <laughs> what would I say about Noah and the flood? So we're now just gradually moving. Genesis 1 to 2. Can I get a Genesis 3 question? What about a Genesis 6 and 7 question? In? So well done. I like the way it... Um, so I think, and this is why I'm a bit gutted about that video not working, because one of the things... He didn't do the video about Noah's flood, but it was a very helpful thing when, he, when this artist's impression of the way that the ancient Israelites saw the world... This idea, and the best close I can come is imagine a huge snow globe with mountains around the edge, water around the edge, and a big dome. He wasn't talking about the flood, but as I saw it, I thought, of course, if that's how ancient people see the world, then to say that the world is flooded and to say that the land we know is flooded is exactly the same thing. To them, they wouldn't make a distinction. Whereas what we do is we go, hmm, and the, the land, because in Hebrew the word land and world are the same. We have two different words. They didn't. So what we go is the world was flooded. And we think, hmm, Mount Everest was flooded. Wow, that's a huge amount of water. And where did it all go and where did it all come from? But in their world, that's just simply not what the word land, in Hebrew it's eretz, or land or world, that's just not what the word would have meant to them. Because for them, the world was this expanse that they could see. So they were speaking truthfully about the world they were in, but doesn't necessarily mean that it applies to Australia, Mount Everest, and everything else, I would say, based on trying to read it as an ancient text, saying, what did they mean? 
They didn't know Mount Everest was there. They didn't know Australia was there. They didn't know America was there. So were they affirming that the Andes were covered in water? Well, not really, because they didn't know the Andes were a thing. They were just saying the world, which as we understand what that is, which is this entire huge area we know, if you don't have airplanes or cars or boats, you just, your understanding of what even the word world means is different from mine. And so I would say, reading it as an ancient text, I could say, Genesis isn't really talking about Nepal or Australia or America. So if we find scientific indications that those things were not covered in water to that degree, that's okay. That doesn't mean the Bible's wrong. The Bible wasn't talking about those things because in the ancient world, no one knew they were there. That would tend to be how I would approach it. Although I'm not claiming that's what this guy was saying, although I think he probably agrees. Is that all right as a, yeah? Yes. Yeah, so how do, we, how do we then make sense of the fact that lots of civilizations have stories of floods? I think the reason is lots of civilizations have had big floods. I don't mean to be flippant about it. I think they have. I think if you, if you live in a world where you don't have houses built on foundations as we do, and to be honest, you live on a floodplain, which because that's where the most fertile land is, most civilizations in the ancient world did. You live in areas where they're well irrigated because you don't have dams and canals and all the rest, and you don't have aqueducts until the Romans and so on. So you are living near sources of water all the time on low-lying ground because it's fertile. The chances are that most civilizations, like what, what we say in Bangladesh would be a modern example, right? So you would, uh, if you were to read now an ancient text and think, how would I have written about this if I lived in Bangladesh today and saw a flood like we've had several times in my lifetime, you can see a lot of similarities. You think that's what they do because actually massive regional floods have taken out civilizations and killed lots of people and been extremely scary and dangerous and the kinds of stories that you would pass on to your children and say, this is the kind of thing that happens when the gods are angry. And I think that's what we find preserved in traditions all over the world. To me, that doesn't say, therefore, there must have been one uber flood that covered them all. It's possible. I don't, I'm not saying it's out, ruling it out, but I don't think it's necessarily the best explanation. I think you'll just find that lots of civilizations experienced heavy flooding through that period of a thousand years in the Bronze Age, and they wrote about it because it was very frightening for them, and very, they often interpreted it through their own religious... Just a little sidebar. It's really fascinating. When you compare... Because the ancient world has lots of stories about floods in this very part of the world. And what's funny about them is that they tell the same story, really, that there was a big flood, and then a, a, a hero gets away on a boat... But they tell, which I think clearly happened, but they tell the story in completely different ways. So the Genesis story says, God said there's going to be a flood. I'm warning you, tell everybody there will be, and then get in a boat and run for your life. And so he did, and God saved him. The other ancient stories say, well, the gods were having an argument, and the land god was annoyed with the sea god. And the land god said, oh, it's all right, I'll save you. And the sea god said, no, I'm now going to come and send a flood. And the gods were basically instituted the flood because the human beings were being too noisy. So they were just, it was keeping them awake. This is literally what you'd read in the Gilgamesh epic. So they came down from heaven, flooded the earth, and then fell out because one of them tried to rescue the hero and the other one didn't want him to. So they got really angry with each other. And in the end, they had to find other means of population control because the gods were getting hungry because there's no human beings to sacrifice to them. And when you compare them, you see, they're both telling a story about a flood, but the significance of it, in one case, is there is one God, and he does anything he chooses, and he's all-powerful. And the significance in the other story is there's lots of gods. They're always squabbling, and they don't know what they're doing. And I think reading those, some of those narratives that way and making the theological contrast is a really helpful thing. That was a bit of a sidebar. But in the meantime, the other flood stories, I think, is because there are lots and lots of floods historically that have frightened ancient civilizations. I don't personally see that there has to be one. 
But again, lots of people disagree about that. Uh, you'd find other people who speak here who would take a different perspective on that view to me. I'm just, I've got to say my, my take on it. Final question. Okay, so do you believe that apes evolved into people? And this, I think, this is the big, hairy, <laughs> it actually is a big, hairy question. I never, that was an unintentional pun. Um, so I think, I think effectively human beings are created uniquely and have the breath of life breathed into them. And the question that, if, you, if you're trying to reconcile evolutionary biology and creation accounts, the flashpoint comes, even, you could affirm a lot of what I've just said today, but the flashpoint comes if you are then, are then going to say, right, so how do we make sense of the genetic indications in modern humans that they might have genetic links to previous creatures? How do you do that? It's not just biology as much as it's genes, usually. Um, and to be honest, I think there's, you, I, I'd, I'd want that to be a question that people really wrestled with thoroughly, and it's very difficult to do an answer to that in 60 seconds, because I think there's a lot of factors on all sides of it. I think the important things to affirm are, God created human beings and put his breath of life in them as a unique kind of creature. But if you are going to read the, the scientific evidence as best we have it alongside the Bible, a lot of Christians would, a lot of evolutionary Christians, which is what somebody over there was saying earlier, she's disappeared. She asked me a question and then she ran. Oh, no, no, you're there. You are. You just had your head down. Okay. Um, so, kind of, so a lot of Christians who would believe in evolution at that point would then say, well, I think God may well have taken if basically these evolved creatures and breathed his breath of life into them and made them a spiritual being. So they did not evolve. So in a sense, they evolved into human beings because they would have looked like Neanderthal people or whatever. They would have looked broadly like us. But in a sense, they didn't evolve into human beings at all because the thing that makes us uniquely human is that God gives us his spirit and breathes his life into us, which is why the answer to your question, as annoying as it is, is kind of yes and no, depending on what you mean by evolved into humans. Would they have looked like you? I would. Yes. Would they have got the same? Would, you, would they thereby be human in the sense you are? No, because I think that comes as a gift of God. But again, that is a really kind of controversial conclusion. A lot of people would disagree. In fact, probably most people here on site would disagree with me about that. Um, there's lots of stuff I could give you to read, which might be, in fact, a few in good things that might be good to read. To so just put it in perspective, and I actually wrote a lengthy series on my, if you, some of you see my Think Theology blog maybe, and I did a series of six or seven articles in which I went through all of these kind of questions in a lot of detail and said, here's 10 models you can have as a Christian. Here's why I would generally go for this one in the end. But I wrote through six different posts. I talked about the origin of death. I talked about, you know, it's just called creation and science. Um, if you were to look at it on the Think Theology blog, you'd find it. To try and explain where I'm coming from with that because it is, for many, a bit of a weird idea. So that's, a, that's the best I can do in 90 seconds. So. Okay. We have reached half past 12. Thank you very much for your attention. Sorry about the video. See you later.